the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of God's inerrant, infallible Word, our Holy Bible, stands as an eternal lighthouse in a decaying world. This worldwide independent radio ministry outreach of the Bible stands is dedicated to the proclaiming of the great truths of Scripture for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, here is our Bible expositor, Wayne Carver. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm glad you've joined us for another message from God's Holy Word. Today I'd like to begin a study of one of the most important prophetic chapters in the entire Bible. The chapter that I have in mind is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me open this study by reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians is one of the great prophetic chapters of the Bible. No other chapter in all of God's Word covers precisely the same points of revelation that are given here. As we undertake to consider the special line of truth brought before us in this chapter, we need again to remind ourselves that Paul's great outstanding theme in this letter is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to receive his own, to be with him, before that awful period of judgment which will come upon the earth, designated in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord, a time of trouble, and the time of Jacob's trouble. Our Lord Jesus Christ spoke of it as the Great Tribulation. The Thessalonian believers were looking forward to the appearing of the Lord. It was this aspect of the Apostle Paul's teaching which had made the deepest impression on their hearts. They were looking for the Lord Jesus Christ to return to earth to execute judgment on the wicked and to set his kingdom in this very scene where he had been rejected and crucified. In his first letter, Paul had showed that before his revelation in power and glory, the Lord will come in the air to catch away his saints. The occasion for the new revelation contained in this chapter was the rise of false teaching in the Thessalonian church. Because of their persecutions, some of the Thessalonians had begun to wonder whether they were not already in the day of the Lord, the predicted time of divine judgment. If so, they realized that they had entered the time of tribulation from which they had been promised deliverance in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In answer to this false assumption, Paul not only gives the Thessalonian believers assurance that they are not in this period, but he also gives them definite signs, the character of which cannot occur while the church is still in this world. Sometimes believers have very poor memories, and these Thessalonians, aided by false teachers, seem to have forgotten this truth which Paul had already endeavored to make so clear. When they found themselves going through a period of bitter persecution and trouble, they began to wonder if the day of the Lord had begun. That is, they thought that they might be already in the Great Tribulation. They lost sight altogether of the truth that had been revealed concerning the catching up first of the church. In the first chapter of this epistle, Paul had discussed the divine retribution that's to take place at the Lord's return. 
He had spoken of the time of God's payday and of how the saints of God were to glorify him in the tribulation. But now, as he opened the second chapter of this letter, he saw the need for more specific revelation. The Holy Spirit of God provided him with this new revelation that was about to be recorded for all church-age saints. The newly revealed mysteries concern primarily those satanic delusions of the last days that in our age have become a reality. That which God had caused to be written has its major benefits for those Christians living near the end of this age of grace. Paul's message is directed to us. Let's consider the details of this most important message. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. As the Apostle Paul continued his second letter to the Thessalonian church, he introduced the subject that had prompted his immediate reply to their communication with him. That subject was their confusion concerning the order of the coming of the day of Christ, or the day of the Lord, with its opening seven-year tribulation period and the rapture of the church. The Thessalonian church had been subjected to greatly intensified persecution, and to those Christians who made up the membership of this local assembly, it seemed certainly possible that they were experiencing the prophesied tribulation that they knew was to come at the end of this age of God's grace. Paul had taught these new converts while he was among them that the tribulation, that seven-year period which is the fulfillment of the 70th week of Daniel, could not come until the Lord had appeared to call his church out of this world. He had repeated this teaching in his first epistle to the Thessalonian church. But the coming of this intense period of persecution, along with the arrival of a forged letter, supposedly from Paul, which said that the day of the Lord had already arrived, had caused many of these Christian men and women to become confused. Some were convinced that the day of the Lord had arrived, that somehow they had been left behind when the Lord appeared for his church, and that they were now experiencing the persecutions and judgments of the opening part of the tribulation. It was because of this situation that the Holy Spirit of God led the Apostle Paul to pen this most enlightening prophecy. Paul's opening words are, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. The apostle does not mince words, nor does he speak in a vague manner as he approaches this most important subject. He would have the Thessalonian Christians to definitely know without any confusion that they were not caught up in the prophesied tribulation that is scheduled to open the day of the Lord at the end of this present day of God's grace. Now we, and in this plural first-person pronoun, he includes himself, Silas, and Timothy, all who were identified as the senders of this letter in the opening verse. Now we earnestly beg you, brethren, notice the use of this term, brethren. Paul recognizes the genuineness of the conversion of these members of the church in Thessalonica. And through that conversion, their spiritual relationship to himself and to his companions as brothers in Christ. Concerning the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
even concerning our gathering together unto him, that ye be not quickly shaken in mind, or be confused and upset, neither because of spirit, nor because of word, nor because of letter, as if from us, that the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, is presently upon us. Those who were God's children in Thessalonica, as well as all of God's children down through this age of grace who read this epistle, are earnestly asked not to be confused concerning the time and the manner of the coming of the day of the Lord. Paul's subject is the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, even the gathering together of all Christians unto him at the time of that appearing. That is, Paul's subject is the rapture of the church. The Apostle Paul acknowledges that it is Satan's purpose to attempt to confuse God's people on the subject of the order of the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ for his church, the rapture, and the coming of the day of the Lord. Satan had tried to confuse the minds of the Thessalonian Christians by all three of the communication methods that Paul itemizes, and he had been quite successful in his generation of confusion. Satan would very much like to have the people of God think that they are scheduled to go through the judgment that God has so clearly revealed that he is to bring upon the earth when his time of judgment comes. By confusing the children of God on this subject, he is able to rob them of that comfort of knowing that the Lord is to appear in the air to catch his church away before the coming of the 70th week of Daniel. In his first epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul had twice exhorted those who understood the doctrine of the Lord's appearing to catch away his church before the coming of the day of the Lord as a thief in the night to comfort one another with these words. Satan greatly desires to take away that comfort. The wicked one desires to do everything in his power to disturb the peace of the one who belongs to the Lord through obedience to the gospel. Thus, he had brought confusion to the Thessalonian Christians by spirit, by word, and by letter, as from us. Our King James Version does not say the day of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2. Rather, this verse reads, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. The King James Version is a translation of the Textus Receptus, and this Greek manuscript does contain the word, the day of Christos, the day of Christ. However, more ancient Greek manuscripts do contain the words, the day of Kurios, the day of the Lord. The day of Kurios, the day of the Lord, may be the original reading. The day of the Lord, which begins with the tribulation and ends with the millennium, is most definitely the time period that Paul has in mind. The day of Christ normally refers to the very day of Christ's appearing for the rapture. This day stands at the beginning of the day of the Lord, which the Apostle Paul here assures the Thessalonian Christians had not yet come. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Let me welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. 
It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Turn your radio up and join us for another message from God's Holy Word. We're involved in a study of one of the most prophetically significant chapters in all the Bible. Our chapter is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me open this second message of the series by reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The apostle writes to the Thessalonian Christians, Now I am requesting you, brethren, with regard to the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, even our being assembled together unto him, not soon to become unsettled, the source of the unsettled state being your minds, neither be thrown into confusion, either by a spirit, that is, a believer in the Christian assembly, claiming the authority of divine revelation, and claiming to give the saints a word from God, or through a word received personally from false teachers passing through Thessalonica, or through a letter falsely alleged to be written by us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come and is now present. The Thessalonian church members were genuine Christians who truly knew the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were also genuine Christians who truly knew the Lord. Paul was an apostle, a sent one, who had received his personal commission to preach the gospel to all Gentiles directly from the Lord himself. These genuine Christians were still present in the earth, and therefore the event of the Lord's appearing in the air had not yet come. And until that event has taken place, the day of the Lord cannot come upon the world. The man of lawlessness, the wicked political ruler of the world during the seven-year tribulation period, cannot even be unveiled in his true identity until the church has been caught away. So any teaching that the tribulation has come before the church is gone is branded as patently false. Paul said that it cannot happen. I am requesting you, brethren, with regard to the appearing in personal presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, even our being assembled together, caught up unto him, not soon to become unsettled, neither be thrown into confusion by the various methods that Satan has for the dispensing false teaching within the church. When Paul speaks of the appearing in personal presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, even our being assembled together unto him, he can have only one event in mind, and that event is the rapture of the church. That is the event of which he had spoken in such detail in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. His former words to this faithful assembly were, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. 
For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the appearing and personal presence of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself, at that appearing and personal presence, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The Greek word that's translated coming in both 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15, where Paul is most definitely speaking of the rapture of the church, and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1 is parousia. This word literally means appearing in personal presence. When Paul uses this Greek word, he is definitely referring to the coming of Christ to receive his church into his personal presence. Paul uses this specific word to refer to the rapture. Paul literally writes, Now I am requesting you, brethren, concerning the matter of the rapture of the church, that you do not let yourselves become confused by false teaching. That day, the day of the Lord, cannot open until the departure of the church to heaven. The rapture has already taken place. The man of sin cannot even be revealed until the rapture is a thing of the past. This is the message that Paul boldly sent out to the Thessalonian Christians. Also, it is to Christians today who have similarly been confused by the erroneous teachings of those eschatological doctrinal systems which go under such names as amillennialism, post-tribulationalism, and mid-tribulationalism, and so forth, that Paul addresses the words found in these opening verses. Now I earnestly request, brethren, concerning the appearing in personal presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, even concerning our regenerated Christians who are a part of Christ's body, the church, gathering together, catching up unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in your minds, or be troubled in your spirits, neither by revelation, which supposedly came from a supernatural source through some member of the assembly, nor by word of mouth from teachers of the itinerant type, who on occasion address the assembly, nor by forged letter that purports to be from us, that is, from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as that the day of the Lord is at hand, that is, as that the day of the Lord has already started, and that the long prophesied tribulation is now upon the earth. The Apostle Paul positively declared to the Thessalonian Christians that the persecutions which they were undergoing at the time of Paul's writing were not a part of that 70th week of the prophecy of Daniel, which is the tribulation. He also let them know definitely that Christians of this age are not scheduled to be present in the earth during those days of the tribulation. Satan had used all of the communication media within his power to try to confuse the minds of those men and women who were God's children in Thessalonica, and he can be expected to continue to use these media as this age moves on toward its close. He had given false teachings through lying spirits sent to speak through the members of the assembly. He had sent falsely indoctrinated non-local teachers to speak to the assembly, and he had even brought about the writing of an epistle containing false teaching on this subject to which he had caused the forged signatures of Paul, Silas, and Timothy to be affixed. 
These, by the way, are the exact same mediums of communication which Satan continues to use down through this age as he seeks to rob God's people of the comfort of knowing that the appearing of the Lord in the air for his church is imminent. In spite of Satan's concentrated efforts to confuse the doctrine of the rapture, by these various means of communication, Paul says in verse 3, Let no man, or better, no one, deceive you by any means. It's Paul's earnest request that God's children in Thessalonica during that day and everywhere in the world in all the days that were to extend from Paul's time down to the actual event of the rapture, not to allow Satan to confuse their understanding of this doctrine no matter what means of communication that he chooses in his attempt to breed confusion. This charge is especially directed to us today as we see the events of the end of the age approaching. Let no created being deceive you by any means. Listen to the apostles' words as they continue in verses 3 and 4. Let no man, actually no one, deceive you by any means. For that day, that is the day of the Lord, with its opening tribulation, shall not come except there come the apostasia, the departure, that is, the departure of the church from the earth as the bride is gathered unto Christ at his appearing first, and that man of lawlessness be unveiled, the son of perdition. Paul here provides the sequence of events that must happen as this age of grace is brought to its prophesied end. The day of the Lord cannot begin Indeed, the man of lawlessness, the world dictator of the seven-year tribulation period, the beast of Revelation chapter 13, the Antichrist, cannot even be unveiled until after the departure of the church of this age to be with the Lord in his Father's house. The rapture must precede the revelation of the identity of the man of sin. Therefore, the rapture must precede the beginning of the day of the Lord. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 reveals that the 70th week of Daniel, which is the seven-year tribulation period, is to begin with the signing of a seven-year covenant of protection between the political nation Israel and this man of lawlessness. Thus, his identity must be revealed and known before the tribulation period comes upon the earth. Paul declares that the rapture of the church must precede the unveiling of the identity of the man of lawlessness. The day of the Lord, no part of it, can come before Christ comes for his church. I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue with our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Thank you. I look forward to this time each day when I can greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm glad that you've tuned in to be a part of our radio family as we once again turn to the Word of God. We're involved in a study of the Apostle Paul's prophecies of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me open today's broadcast by reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, 
so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. These verses contain the clearest revelation found in all of God's word of the chronological relationship between the rapture of the church of this age and the coming of the tribulation period that's to open the age to come, that age which is known prophetically as the day of the Lord. God had permitted a situation to develop in the city of Thessalonica that made it necessary for the Apostle Paul to write the statements contained in these verses. However, these declarations are not for the Thessalonian Christians only, but they're for all Christians down through this age of grace until that day when the Lord actually appears to gather his church out of this world. As the Apostle Paul pens the words that open chapter 2 of his epistle, he once and for all positively establishes that the tribulation period, which opens the day of the Lord, cannot come upon the earth until after the Lord has appeared in the air to catch away his church. Paul is emphatic as he writes the words that are contained here. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1, the apostle established the fact that he was speaking concerning the rapture of the church when he said, Now we earnestly request you, brethren, concerning the appearing in personal presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, even our gathering together unto him. The appearing in personal presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, even our gathering together unto him, is the rapture of the church. The Greek word translated coming in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1 is the exact same word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15 where, speaking most definitely of the Lord's appearing at the time of the rapture, he writes, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming, the appearing in personal presence of the Lord, shall not precede them which are asleep. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul refers to this same event, and he says that this event, the rapture, is the subject of what he's about to bring up. The fact that some of the Thessalonian Christians believe that the day of the Lord had already come upon the earth was the source of the confusion to which Paul addressed these opening remarks. He asked these Christians, to not be quickly shaken in mind or to be troubled by any means of false doctrine, propagation, which attempted to convince them that the day of the Lord was at hand. Then the Apostle Paul continued on to state that the day of the Lord cannot come upon the earth until after the rapture, the Lord's appearing in personal presence, even our gathering together unto him, has already taken place. This statement should forever end the controversy as to whether or not the church of this age is scheduled to go through the tribulation period. Paul says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, that the church is not to go through that 70th week of Daniel. Why is it that more people don't turn to this passage and therefore know beyond doubt what the Bible teaches concerning this subject? The reason lies in the fact that there are two problems associated with our standard English translation that hide the real impact of this passage of Scripture. The first is the textual variation contained in the Textus Receptus, which causes the last clause of verse 2 to read the day of Christ rather than the day of the Lord. Paul was not referring to the day of Christ, which is the rapture, but rather he was referring to the day of the Lord, which is the tribulation followed by the millennium. It is that day, the day of the Lord, that cannot precede the rapture. The second problem concerns the translation of the Greek term hey apostasia in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. 
In our King James Version, this expression is translated as a falling away, and it has been common practice for many to assume that this means a falling away from revealed truth. We get our transliterated English word apostasy from this Greek term, and the English word apostasy does definitely mean a departure from revealed truth, a falling away from truth once believed. Therefore, it has usually been assumed that when Paul speaks of the apostasia, he's referring to an apostasy in doctrine, not to the rapture. The Greek word apostasia literally means a departure as on a journey. It can mean a departure from revealed truth, but this is a secondary application of the word's prime meaning. One who spoke Koine Greek in Paul's day would speak of an impending departure on a journey as his coming apostasia. Our interpretation of this word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 seems to have been biased by the fact that this Greek word is used at only one other place in the New Testament, and there the word does refer to a departure from revealed truth. The other appearance is in Acts chapter 21 and verse 21. Here the beloved physician, Luke, writes the words that the believers in Caesarea spoke to Paul. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake a departure from Moses. Here the word apostasia is translated forsake, and in context it does refer to a departure in doctrine. But this passage does not use the word in its primary sense of meaning. The Greek noun apostasia is derived from the verb apistimai, which means to depart from or to a place. Apistimai appears 11 times in the New Testament, and in every usage it carries a translation of departing from. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul uses the noun apostasia to refer to the departure of the church from the earth, not the departure of Christians from truth once revealed. The Apostle Paul uses this term with the Greek definite article to designate a specific departure. He does not say an apostasia, but he rather says the apostasia. The Greek text most definitely includes the definite article, even though it is not translated in many of our English versions. There is no specific prophecy anywhere else in Scripture that refers to any definite time in the future as the falling away, the apostasy. Scripture does indicate that the general trend throughout this age of the kingdom of the heavens will be a movement toward apostasy and doctrine, and that this situation will worsen near the end of the age. This is the impact of the Lord's seven parables of the kingdom of the heavens that are found in Matthew chapter 13, and also of his seven letters to the churches in Asia that are found in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. But nowhere does scriptural prophecy point out a specific time period in this age of grace that could be designated as the apostasy. Paul must have had something else in view as he uses this term. In the first verse of this second chapter of his letter, the apostle Paul spoke of the rapture of the church, and he introduced it as the subject of concern to this part of his written message when he said, Now we beseech you, brethren, concerning the parousia, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, even concerning our gathering together unto him. He's still speaking of the event of the rapture when in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, he uses the Greek term that actually refers to a departure as on a journey. 
He is speaking of the departure of the church of this age out of the earth to be with the Lord in his Father's house. That is a specific prophetic event, and that is an event that can be designated by the use of the definite article as the departure. Paul uses the Greek term, hey apostasia, as a specific name for the event that today we refer to as the rapture. By the way, where do we get this word rapture? It's an English translation of a Latin word, rapturus, which also means a departure as on a journey. When we speak of the rapture, we're actually speaking of the departure. The Latin word rapturus is the exact equivalent of the Greek word apostasia. In the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible, the word rapturus is used to translate Paul's Greek apostasia of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. In fact, our very word rapture comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of this word. There is absolutely no doubt that Paul was referring to the rapture of the church when he selected this term. The Apostle Paul's statement to the Thessalonian Christians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 can be literally translated as follows. Let no one, no created being, deceive you by any means. For that day, the day of the Lord, shall not come, except there come the rapture of the church first, and then that man of lawlessness be unveiled, the son of perdition. Paul clearly states that the day of the Lord cannot come upon the world as a thief in the night until after the church has departed from the earth at the time of the Lord's parousia, that is, until after the rapture of the church has taken place. According to the definition of the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord begins with the seven-year period that's known as the tribulation. Therefore, the church is not to be present in the earth at the time of the coming of the tribulation period. This is why Paul had twice told the Thessalonian Christians in his first epistle to them, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The Apostle Paul's inspired statement of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 should forever end the controversy as to the exact chronology of the rapture of the church and the coming of the tribulation. Paul says that the rapture of the church must precede the coming of the tribulation. And with this announcement, I must close today's message. We'll continue our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Turn your radio up and join us as we again open the Word of God. We're considering the prophecies of the Apostle Paul that are found in the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians. Let's open today's message by reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The apostle's statement of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 goes even beyond his declaration that the day of the Lord cannot come until after the church's departure at the time of Christ's appearing. He says that the man of lawlessness, the great world dictator, the beast, the antichrist, 
cannot be revealed to the world until after the church has departed at the time of the rapture. He says, For the day of the Lord shall not come until after the rapture of the church, and then that man of lawlessness be unveiled, the son of perdition. When the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air and to return with him to heaven, the Holy Spirit of God, who is now locally present in the earth in his special indwelling ministry, will also be caught up with the church. His ministry of restraining the spread of overt evil in the world will come to an end at that time. With the restraining power of the Holy Spirit of God removed, then the man of sin will be revealed to the world. He will then be able to sign the seven-year covenant with Israel. With that signing, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In these two verses, the Holy Spirit of God reveals a tremendous amount of information concerning this coming bloody and deceitful man who is to establish himself in the role of the counterfeit Messiah, the Antichrist, during that seven-year period which marks the beginning of the day of the Lord. He's to be unveiled, that is, his identity is to be revealed to the world after the church of this age has been caught up to heaven. He's to be a man who is total outlaw. That is, he's to be a man who totally disregards all of the laws of God that have, to a degree, governed the peoples of the earth since God's original covenant with Noah and his sons at the beginning of the post-flood world. He's the man about whom the prophet Daniel writes in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25 when he speaks of the coming ruler who will think to change times and laws. He's the king of whom Daniel is speaking also in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37, when the prophet writes, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself, and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak terrible blasphemous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper until the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. This man is opposed to everything that speaks of the law of the God of creation. He's the man of lawlessness. And to again use an expression that was coined to describe the hero of what is our present-day Bible of the Antichrist, a powerful little book called Jonathan Livingston Seagull, he will be total outlaw. He will stand against everything that presently constitutes what's called moral law, and he'll bring his changed times and laws into force upon the tribulational earth. The Apostle Paul has several things to say about this coming man of lawlessness. First, he refers to him as the son of perdition. The word perdition is translated from a Greek word which means destruction. Its root is the word apollyon, which means destroyer. This word is used in scripture as a direct designator for the devil himself. Thus Paul refers to the coming man of sin as the son of Satan, the son of the devil. There's only one other man in scripture who's referred to as the son of perdition, and that man is Judas Iscariot. In the Lord's great high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, he used this term as he referred to Judas. In verse 12 he said, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in my name. Those that thou givest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, the son of destruction, or the son of the destroyer, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
Judas Iscariot was at that point called the son of perdition or the son of the destroyer. Because this same term that the Lord applied to Judas is also used by Paul to refer to the coming evil world dictator, some have felt that this man of sin is actually going to be the resurrected Judas Iscariot returned to the earth to carry out Satan's bidding. Therefore they have taught that the beast out of the sea of Revelation chapter 13 is none other than Judas Iscariot himself returning from the dead for his wicked role of the closing days of this age. This does not necessarily follow. Scripture tells us that Satan had entered into Judas at the time that he betrayed the Lord of glory. In John chapter 13, verses 36, or rather 26 and 27, we read, Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. When Satan entered into Judas, he actually became Satan incarnate. He was the offspring of the devil. He was the son of destruction, or the son of the destroyer, the son of perdition. Likewise, the coming man of sin is to be indwelt by Satan. He also will become the devil incarnate, or the son of the destroyer. This does not mean that the same human body will be occupied by Satan at the time of the tribulation that was occupied by him at the time of the Lord's betrayal. Since there's no place in Scripture that indicates that Satan has ever been given the power of resurrection, it would seem that the idea that the man of sin is literally Judas Iscariot in resurrected form is not what the Apostle Paul infers when he calls this man of sin the son of perdition. That expression could refer to any man that is literally and directly indwelt by the devil, the prince of demons himself. When the end-time world dictator is referred to as the son of perdition, it does call to mind another prophecy of scripture that seems to be literally fulfilled by the coming of this man. It was in the Garden of Eden, immediately after the fall of Adam, that Yahweh Elohim, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Lord God, appeared unto Adam, Eve, and the serpent, who also was indwelt by Satan, and who thus was at that encounter the son of perdition, to pronounce judgment upon these principles of the rebellion against God. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, turned to the Satan-indwelt serpent and said to him, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The son of perdition is the seed of Satan. The seed of the woman is our Lord Jesus Christ. That great dictator of the last days is designated specifically as Satan's seed. It's to be he whose head is literally bruised and battered by the seed of woman. The man of sin is the incarnation of the seed of the devil, and he is the offspring of Satan. He's the one of whom the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 speaks. And so the apostle Paul writes, And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The identity of the man of lawlessness is to be revealed to the world after the church has been caught up to heaven. To those living in the world at that time, there will be no doubt that this man claims to be divine. 
He's going to make the claim that he is God himself, and he will refuse to subordinate himself to any power in heaven or earth. He is the fulfillment of that prophecy that the Lord made to the religious leaders of Israel during the time of his earthly ministry. This prophecy was recorded by the Apostle John in chapter 5 and verse 43 of his gospel. The Lord said, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. This coming man of sin is the Antichrist in every sense of the meaning of this expression. He will usurp the throne of the earth, and he will sit in that position of King of kings and Lord of lords that rightfully belongs to the anointed one of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the counterfeit of the Son of God, and he will fulfill the role of the second person in the unholy trinity of the satanic Godhead. Notice exactly what the Apostle Paul has to say about this world figure whose unveiling is to come after the rapture of the church. He is the one who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called deity, or that is an object of veneration, so that he, as God, sitteth in the holy of holies of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This man will stand against everything and every law that represents the word or the will of the true and living God. Paul says that he opposeth all that is called God. He will be against everything that speaks to the world of the God of creation. As the prophet Daniel puts it, he will seek to change times and laws. This man will set a dedicated course to wipe everything that speaks of the God of heaven from the face of this earth. In fact, he will attempt to destroy anything that represents a system of worship of any professed deity other than himself. Paul says that he opposeth, stands against, all that is called God. He further states that this man exalteth himself above all that is called deity. My time is gone for today. We'll have to delay our discussion of this man of sin until our next broadcast when we'll continue our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm glad you've joined our radio family for another message from God's Holy Word. Today we're continuing our study of the second chapter of the Apostle Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. Let me once again read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? This man of sin is suddenly going to be revealed to the earth as the one who is able to solve all of the earth's problems. He's going to claim to be the Messiah of Israel, the Allah of Muslimism, the Buddha of Buddhism, and so forth. He will exalt himself above all that is called by any name of deity. He will not acknowledge any god, any person, any divine power as greater than himself. He will claim to be the god of gods, and he will not permit the acknowledging or the worship of any deity other than himself. 
the man of sin is to be that one unique figure in the history of the earth who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called deity, or that is an object of veneration, so that he as God sitteth in the most holy place of the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There have been many political rulers in the history of the world who have professed themselves to be divine. The Caesars of Rome claimed to possess deity, and they demanded that their subjects worship them as gods. Certain of the kings of Babylon made similar claims. The third chapter of Daniel relates a time when Nebuchadnezzar set himself up as deity and as an object of veneration. The kings of Persia and certain of the kings of Syria did the same thing. But none of those previous mortal earthly political rulers ever had the audacity to elevate themselves to the position of the supreme deity of the universe. All of these previous kings recognized other deities as their superiors, and they themselves worshipped some external deity. But not so the man of sin. At his coming, he will exalt himself above everything that is claimed as divine. He will recognize no god other than himself. He will claim to be the god of creation, and he will claim to control all of the power of the universe. This man will oppose everything that speaks of the true and living God and of his righteous rule of the universe. He will seek to change times and laws. All of the moral law established by the God of heaven to rule over his created earth will be changed and corrupted by this man. He will even seek to change God's prophetic timetable. He, as the self-proclaimed God of the universe, will corrupt all of the governments of the earth, and he will not permit even the mention of any God other than himself. To support his claim that he is the God of the universe, this man of sin will take possession of all of that which is recognized as belonging to the true and living God. In the day of this man's revelation to the world, the temple of God in the city of Jerusalem will have been rebuilt, or at least it will be in an advanced state of being rebuilt. The man of sin will understand that this temple is recognized by Israel and by many others in the earth also as being the exclusive possession of Jehovah, the covenant God of Israel. Since this man, who has come in his own name, claims to be the God of creation and therefore also the covenant God of Israel, he will proceed to possess this temple as his own exclusive property. The inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, of the temple was the place where God made his local presence known as he dwelt among his chosen people, Israel. That most holy part of the temple is where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. The top of this Ark formed the mercy seat, and there between the two cherubim, under their outstretched wings, the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory, which marked the local presence of God, appeared in those days of the ancient temple of Solomon. The men of sin will enter into this most holy place, and he will take possession of it as his throne room. This is what the Apostle Paul prophesies as he goes on to say, So that he, in the role of God, sitteth in the holy of holies of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The word translated temple is the Greek name for the most holy inner sanctuary of the temple. It does not refer to the entire temple. The man of sin is here specifically prophesied to violate the most holy place of the reconstructed temple. He will enter into and take possession of that cubic-shaped room where no mortal man except the high priest on the day of atonement when he carried the blood of the sacrifice to sprinkle on the mercy seat could enter. He will defile this most holy place. 
Other scripture seems to tell us that he will set up an image, probably of himself, in that Holy of Holies, and that this image will appear to become alive. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 15, the Apostle John, speaking of the false prophet, the second beast, who points to the worship of the man of sin as he fulfills his prophetic role of the counterfeit Holy Spirit, writes, And he had power to give spirit unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast could both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. The word that our King James Version translates as life in this verse is actually the Greek word for spirit. This is significant because the thought seems to be that this image, probably an elaborate computerized robot, will be directly possessed and controlled by an alien spirit, a demon spirit. It will not actually have life, but it will appear to have life because this possessing spirit will give the image the power to reason as well as the power to have all of the motor functions of an entity that actually possesses physical life. The men of sins actual entry into the Holy of Holies of the temple and his setting up of this bizarre image is the abomination of desolation first prophesied by Daniel but mentioned by the Lord Jesus Christ in his Olivet Discourse. It's in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15 that he made this mention. When this abomination is finally observed, the Lord told those who were to be present in Jerusalem and Judea at that time to flee into the mountains. This event is to open the Great Tribulation, which is the final three and one-half years of the 70th week of Daniel. This coming man of sin is truly the Antichrist. He is to literally usurp the place of God's anointed one as ruler over the whole earth. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, this man is going to claim to be God in the flesh. But the son of perdition will not claim to have voluntarily subordinated himself to the will of the Father. Rather, he will claim to be the Father. He opposeth and exalteth himself above all that goes under the name of God. He will claim to be the epitome of deity, subordinate to no other person. He is the one of whom the Lord spoke in John chapter 5 and verse 45, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. The information that Paul had written to the Thessalonian converts in the preceding few verses was not new to them. Paul had taught them personally that the Lord was to appear in the air to gather his church unto him and to take her home to heaven before the beginning of the tribulation period, which marks the opening seven years of the day of the Lord. He had made it clear that the coming man of sin could not be unveiled to the world until after the church was gone. He had taught these new Christians that this coming world dictator would claim to be the one and only God of the universe and that he would take possession of the Holy of Holies of the Temple of Jehovah in Jerusalem. He had taught them that this man would place his throne in this inner sanctuary of the temple and that he would do this to demonstrate to the inhabitants of the world that he was, indeed, the God and the Messiah of Israel. But these newly reborn people of God were far from perfect, just as we today who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior are far from perfect. The things that had happened in Thessalonica since Paul had gone away had led to a great deal of confusion in these prophetic teachings. 
certain members of the assembly had experienced what they believed to be direct revelation from God, which told them that the persecution that they were experiencing was actually the opening of the tribulation period. Teachers from outside the local assembly had declared that the day of the Lord had already begun, and a letter had arrived carrying the forged name of Paul himself. This letter also said that the day of the Lord had come upon the earth. These various means of deception had led to the confusion of mind that was now present among the Thessalonian believers. It was because of this situation that the Holy Spirit of God caused the Apostle Paul to write these words of inspired scripture that we have before us. Here, indelibly engraved upon the pages of God's written word, are the indisputable statements that reveal to God's people down through the age the fact that the church is to be home with the Lord before the unveiling of that wicked personality that we sometimes refer to as the Antichrist, and therefore before the beginning of the tribulation period of the day of the Lord. The Thessalonian Christians had heard these prophetic truths from Paul's mouth, and to them the words of this letter were just a refresher course. Paul told them, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things? But for the many Christian men and women who would never be privileged to hear Paul speak these teachings personally, they are here written as a part of God's indestructible word. I see that my time is about gone. Be sure that you tune in to the next broadcast, and we'll continue our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's so good to greet you once again in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Listen closely for the next quarter hour as we bring you another important message from God's Holy Word. The portion of God's Word that we're now considering is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Remember ye not? that when I was yet with you I told you these things, and now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. The Apostle Paul had not neglected the subject of the Lord's second coming, and of the events that are to both characterize the end of this age of grace and the beginning of the day of the Lord, when he was among those newly reborn Thessalonian Christians, during those three or four weeks while he was personally present in that European city. Unlike many today who claim such teachings are unimportant, the Apostle Paul considered these facts of God's revealed plan of the ages as extremely important to the maturing child of God. The two Thessalonian epistles are the earliest inspired writings of the Apostle Paul. Both of these letters deal very largely with prophetic events that are to occur in association with the second coming of Jesus Christ. We can know from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5 that Paul's teachings on this subject were not confined just to his inspired writings. They were very much a part of his oral ministry as he personally taught these new converts that God had given him through his evangelistic ministry. Paul writes, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? After asking this question of verse 5, as a reminder of some of his previous teachings, the Apostle Paul went on to further refresh his readers' minds about other related truths 
His thesis statement is contained in verse 3. There he had written, Let no created being deceive you by any available method. For the day of the Lord shall not come, except there come the rapture first, and then the man of lawlessness be revealed, the son of perdition. Paul is continuing to expound this thesis in verse 6. And now ye know who restraineth that he, the man of sin, might be revealed in his, the man of sin's, time. Paul had not just taught the Thessalonian Christians the fact that the man of sin could not be unveiled to the world until after the church had been caught up, but he had also taught them why that he could not be unveiled until then. He expected these children of God to recall that he taught them about one whose local ministry and whose local presence is now presently in the earth. A part of the ministry of this one is the restraint of overt evil in the world while God prolongs this day of his grace. Paul writes, And now, after my reminder, ye know who restraineth. The apostle is speaking of the Holy Spirit of God who came into his local ministry in the earth on the day of Pentecost. He came to baptize believers into the one body, which is the church. He came to personally indwell each believer. He came to convict of sin, and he came to hold back or to restrain the spread of Satan's mystery of iniquity until God's purpose in calling out the church could be completed. It's the Holy Spirit of God who is the restrainer. Paul called this to his readers' minds as he wrote, And now ye know who is restraining Satan's efforts to bring his man of lawlessness into the world, that that wicked one might be revealed in his appointed time and not before that appointed time. The next verse is a further expansion of this thought. For the mystery of iniquity, Satan's master plan of evil that will eventually result in bringing the entire earth under the political and ecclesiastical power of this man of sin, the mystery of iniquity doth already in Paul's day work. That is, it was even then organized and operating in the New Testament world. Only he who now restraineth the Holy Spirit of God in his restraining ministry will continue to restrain until he be taken up from the earth. When is that time that the Holy Spirit is to be taken up from the earth? He will be caught up at the same time that the church is caught up to be with the Lord. Thus the man of sin will be revealed when God's Holy Spirit ceases to restrain Satan. That restraint will cease at the time of the rapture of the church. This is the teaching that Paul attempts to recall to the minds of the recipients of this letter. The Holy Spirit of God is to remain in special local presence in the earth as long as the church of this age is in the earth. When the church is caught up to heaven to be with the Lord, then the special residential ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which began on the day of Pentecost, just ten days after the Lord's ascension back to heaven, will come to an end. His restraining power will be removed. Satan can then unveil his masterpiece, the man of sin, the beast out of the sea, the willful king, the bloody and deceitful man. With no further divine restraint upon him, this man can assume his position of world control, he can sign that seven-year covenant of hell with the political nation Israel. The signing of that covenant simultaneously initiates both the day of the Lord and the seven-year tribulation period. 
Paul had instructed the Thessalonian Christians in the doctrines concerning the present ministry of God the Holy Spirit, just as the Lord himself has instructed us in these same doctrines in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John. Now he felt certain that these disciples would remember his teachings as he went on to provide an explanation as to why it is impossible for the tribulation period to come upon the earth before the time of the rapture of the church. Paul has said, After my reminder, you are now knowledgeable as to who is restraining Satan's plan for world conquest. You know who is holding back the progress of Satan's program, so that this man of sin will be revealed in his own appointed time. If it were not for this divine restraint, Satan could very well accomplish his purpose and bring about the tribulation conditions before God had completed his purpose of calling out the church. Satan would be able to unveil his masterpiece, the Antichrist, before the appointed time. Paul continued to write, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now restraineth will continue to restrain until he be taken up from the earth. The clear statement here is, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. What is the mystery of iniquity? This is Satan's organized system in the earth that is dedicated to the bringing of all nations and peoples together into one single unified political and religious system, dedicated to the casting off of the bands of God and to the following of Satan's leadership. It is Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. It's the great seven-headed beast with the ten horns of Revelation chapter 17. It's that mystery system that had its founding and first organization in Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, at the time of the building of the Tower of Babel. This is the world organization of satanically directed men that is to place the Antichrist in his position at the pinnacle of world power. This mystery cult has had continuous organization among certain men of the earth passed on from generation to generation down through the centuries that have intervened since the days of Babel, when Nimrod, his wife Semiramis, and Semiramis' son Tammuz, or Baal, established the Babylonian religious and political mysteries during their lifetimes in the early centuries of the post-flood world. Paul acknowledges that this satanically directed mystery cult was hard at work in his day and it has continued to work right on down through the centuries until the present time. He writes, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. The Greek word here translated work refers to a process of permeating and penetrating, bringing all parts into the polluted state that has been induced by the polluting element. It's the word used for the working of leaven in a lump of dough. This appears to be the concept that the Apostle Paul intends to convey. Just as leaven inserted at one point in a lump of dough will begin to permeate and spread until the entire lump is leavened, so Paul pictures the working of the mystery of iniquity. Satan's organized system of the Babylonian mysteries with its goal of total world power, both in the political and ecclesiastical sense, had been inserted in the dough of the world, and the leavening process was going on at the very time that Paul wrote this short epistle. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. The process of leavening a loaf can proceed very rapidly if conditions of temperature, humidity, and consistency of the mixture is exactly right. What was to prevent the leavening of the mystery of iniquity from proceeding at a very rapid pace 
thus bringing this satanic system into power over the earth at a very early time, perhaps even before God's appointed time? Paul answers that question. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who is now restraining will continue to restrain until he be taken up out of the earth. The Holy Spirit of God is presently in the earth, and he is holding back that complete permeation by the mystery of iniquity. Satan's final goals cannot be attained until after this restraining power is removed. God's restraint will not be removed as long as the Holy Spirit of God is yet here in his special residential ministry. He will be here in that mystery, or in that ministry, as long as the church of this age, which he indwells, is still here. Both the church and the Holy Spirit of God will be taken up out of the earth at the time of the rapture. My time is almost gone. We'll consider the mystery of iniquity as it works in our day as we continue our study of Second Thessalonians chapter 2 on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Let me greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let's now turn to the Word of God for our message of today. The scripture that we're considering is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's open today's message by reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That stirring of Satan in the earthly scene, which the Apostle Paul refers to as the mystery of iniquity, was already busily at work in Paul's day. It's the working of the mystery of iniquity that is eventually going to bring Satan's man of sin into political and ecclesiastical control over the entire earth. The mystery of iniquity had its origin in Nimrod at the time of the building of the Tower of Babel. This is the Babylonian mystery cult that, as an organization of satanically driven men, attempts to unite all of the peoples of the earth into a one-world political system that opposes the rule of the God of heaven and that directs worship toward the one who sits at the head of this one-world political state. All pagan religions are derived from the Babylonian mystery of iniquity, and there has been an organization of men in the earth that have sought to bring to fruition Satan's master plan ever since it came into existence. Paul is speaking of this situation as it existed in his own day as he writes to the Thessalonian Christians, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Even in Paul's time, Satan was continuing to work in the earth toward the bringing about of conditions that would make it possible for him to unveil his Antichrist and to place him on the throne of the world. In that day, this cult was headquartered in Rome and it went under the designation of the Estrusian Mysteries. Not too many years earlier, this same mystery cult had been headquartered in Ephesus, and there it went under the designation of the Ephesian Mysteries. This cult has continued to flourish down through the centuries under various names such as the Knights Templar. 
In our day, this mystery cult has achieved tremendous political strength in the world under the name of the Order of the Illuminati. This Western European international cult, with its many subsidiaries that go under the various names in different parts of the world, has achieved such strength that it is now manipulating all of the political movements of the entire world. Even the very political factions into which the world is presently polarized were designed and engineered by this present visible organization of the Babylonian mystery cult. It's precisely the same organized cult of which Paul spoke, only the name and the personalities have changed. When he wrote, For the mystery of iniquity, that is, the secret cult of overt evil, doth already work. If Satan had such a dedicated organization of men in the earth, even in the very day when Paul wrote this epistle, then why has he not been able to bring his antichrist-controlled world government and world religious system into total power long before now? Why is it that it has taken almost 2,000 years for the world to be brought to the very brink of the tribulation situation just as it actually is today? The reason is given by Paul, and this reason is the main thrust of the statements that he makes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says, And now, after my reminder of things that I taught you while I was present among you, ye know who restraineth, so that he, the Antichrist, might be revealed in his appointed time, not prior to this appointed time. For the mystery of iniquity, the mystery cult, that is to bring this man of sin into power over the earth, doth already work, that is, it is presently organized and actively working as leaven in a lump of dough. Only he who now restraineth will continue to restrain until he be taken up from the earth. Here is the answer to why Satan's mystery of iniquity has not been able to achieve control of the world over these 1900 plus centuries which have gone by since Paul wrote these words. There is a restrainer in the earth. That restrainer is the Holy Spirit of God who, as a part of his special residential ministry in the earth during this age of the church, is holding back the spread of overt evil. God himself, in the person of the Holy Spirit, has restricted the success and the spread of Satan's mystery cult operation, and he will continue to exercise such restraint until his special residential ministry in the earth is finished. That ministry will be finished when he is taken up from the earth. Once again, when is that day that God's Holy Spirit is to be taken up from the earth? It's the day of Christ, the day when the Lord Jesus Christ himself will appear in personal presence in the air to gather the church unto himself and to take her, his bride, home to his father's house. The Holy Spirit of God was sent into special presence in the earth on the day of Pentecost to baptize all believers into the one body, which is the church. He was sent to personally indwell all believers as the comforter, the paraclete, the one who stands alongside of. It was on the day of Pentecost that the church of this age was born. The building process of the church that our Lord spoke of in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 was to continue throughout this age of grace until the day known only to God when the church is finally to be complete. It is to be then that the Lord Jesus Christ will arise from his throne at the right hand of the Father in heaven and will descend into the atmospheric heaven to gather both the dead and the living of his 
called out assembly unto him. And when he calls his church out of the earthly sphere, he will also call the Holy Spirit out of his special residential ministry in the earth. Therefore, when God's Holy Spirit is taken from his special residential ministry in the earth, then will that wicked one be unveiled. Satan's counterfeit Christ is to have his unveiling, his apocalypsis, just as the true Christ of God is to have his unveiling, his apocalypsis. The unveiling of the counterfeit Christ is to take place slightly more than seven years before the unveiling of God's true Christ, the anointed one of heaven. The reign of the counterfeit Christ, the Antichrist, is to be short-lived. But while he does reign, he will spread wickedness, devastation, and death over the entire face of the earth in a way that has never before been seen in all of the history of this world. The record of the time of the reign of this man is given to us in some detail in the 6th through the 19th chapters of the book of Revelation. He will reign over the world of the tribulation, the world of the 70th week of Daniel. Even as his unveiling takes place, the doom of this satanically indwelled world dictator is already sealed. The Apostle Paul says that this wicked one is the same willful king of Daniel and the same bloody and deceitful man of the psalmist who has prophesied elsewhere in the scripture to be destroyed out of the earth at the time that the Lord returns in power and glory to establish his everlasting kingdom. At the very time that this wicked one has his identity disclosed to the earth, the time of his demise is already scheduled. Just a little more than seven years from that infamous unveiling, this beast out of the sea is to be cast alive into Gehenna, the lake of fire. Paul says, And then will be revealed the lawless one, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, and annul by the appearing of his coming. This evil one of the earth has been destined for destruction by the breath of the Lord's mouth from the time when first God began to breathe his eternal written word through the prophets of Israel. The power of God is exercised through God's breathed word. It was the breath of his mouth that spoke the universe into existence. It was the breath of his mouth that formed the seas and the continents. It was by the breath of his mouth that he breathed life into the body of Adam, which he had formed from the inorganic materials of the earth. It's with the breath of his mouth that he slays the wicked. And it's with the breath of his mouth that he is to consume the wicked one, the world dictator of the tribulation. The returning Lord Jesus Christ is God the Creator. The same breath or spirit that formed the heavens and the earth is to consume and annul the man of sin only a few short years after his unveiling. But Satan's man in the earth does have a little more than seven years to carry on his evil and destructive program. However, even as he exercises that program, those who know the word of God, and soon after the church is caught up from the earth, there will be thousands who do turn to the soon coming Messiah as the nation of Israel is saved in a day, will realize that the date of his doom is already set. These words, written by Paul so many years before, will become doubly precious to those who have come to know the Lord during the time period of the tribulation. The apostle has pre-written the destiny of this man of lawlessness, and he has said that this unveiled one is the one whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and annul by the presence of his coming. 
The Lord is personally to consume or destroy this human epitome of wickedness. That is, he is to remove him from the domain of the earth, and he is to transport him to the place of his eternal destiny by the power of his spoken word. The Lord is to annul or to neutralize also this man's evil influence and the power of his evil system over the world. He and all that stands behind him is to be rendered inoperative by the sudden appearance in personal presence of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns in power and great glory. I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Yeah.